Good morning again, church. Uh, Ezra 9, from the New International Version. After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, the Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them, and the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles, and I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. Then, at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my abasement, my self-abasement, with my tunic and dark cloak torn, and fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God and prayed, I am too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift up my face to you, because our sins are higher than our heads, and our guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days of our ancestors until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subject to the sword and captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hands of foreign kings, as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and given us a firm place in his sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. Though we are slaves, our God has not forsaken us in our bondage. He has shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia. He has granted us new life to rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins. And he has given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. But now, our God, what can we say after this? For we have forsaken the commands you gave through your servant, the prophet, when you said, the land you are entering to possess is a land polluted by the corruption of its peoples. By their detestable practices, they have filled it with impurity from one end to the other. Therefore, do not give your daughters in marriage to our sons or take their daughters for your sons. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them at any time, that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it to your children as an everlasting inheritance. What has happened to us is the result of our evil deeds and our great guilt, and yet Our God, you have punished us less than our sins have deserved, and you have given us a remnant like this. Shall we then break your commands again and intermarry with the people who commit such detestable practices? Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survivor? Lord, the God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt. Though because of it, not one of us can stand in your presence. Lord God, please open our eyes to see what your word holds for us. Open our ears to hear and our hearts to receive. We pray that we might glorify you uh, through this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Up to this point in the book of Ezra, God's amazing provision has been made for his people Uh, Over and over again, we've seen. He he delivered them out of exile in Babylon and back into their homeland in Jerusalem in order to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the city after that. 
And he sent a wave in under the emperor um, Cyrus the Great, and then he did it again under the emperor, emperor Darius, and then he did it again under the emperor Artaxerxes. He keeps doing it, and each successive wave brings with them back into the promised land, back into their homeland, more wealth. So another cache of great wealth, silver and gold and livestock and, and all the resources that they need to accomplish this great rebuilding work. God has blessed them over and over. So much to celebrate. Over the course of 100 years, there's been so much for the people to celebrate. And when chapter 9 opens, Ezra has brought this last wave of returnees with him about four months ago. So it's been about four months since he arrived with new people and new cash to continue the rebuilding work. Ezra likely spent those four months, those first four months, traveling around to the officials of the region, introducing himself, showing his... um, his certification from the emperor to do this work, his credentials, informing them about Artaxerxes' latest decree that Jerusalem should be rebuilt. And we, we see that in chapter 8. But when he finally settles into his primary work, and we saw a couple weeks ago, Ezra's primary work is to teach the word of God to the people of God. And as he settles into that work, well, he's confronted with the first great crisis that he has to face. And what is the danger that he has to face? Is it an invading army coming through and destroying the city? No. Is it, is it a plague sweeping through? No. In fact, all was peaceful. To the untrained eye, there's nothing out of the ordinary going on. Yet those who had been listening to Ezra teach the Bible, they had gained spiritual sight, and as they looked around, they saw an existential crisis, something that threatened to destroy the whole project. And what was that? Well, the people of God were compromising with the world, and losing their distinctiveness. That was the threat that they faced. And that's the danger we see in in verses 1 and 2, the danger of losing distinctiveness. Verse 1 says, After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, they haven't kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices like those of the Canaanites and Hittites and so forth. And they've taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, and they've mingled the holy race with the people around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. So what is the grave danger that the people of God face in their, in their life together? The thing that threatens to derail the whole thing It was the sight of Israelite families happily gathered together uh, arm in arm around the altars of Baal, offering sacrifices, gathering together for feasts in in the temple of Moloch and celebrating. 
putting up their Asherah poles in their gardens and, and worshiping around them. That was the great danger. In other words, it was a completely ordinary sight for that region at that time. It was what you would see in every household and now was seen in the households of the people of God. They were living exactly like their pagan neighbors. And these weren't just some fringe members of the Israelite community. These were the priests and the Levites, the ones charged with teaching the people how to obey God and how to live for him. They were the leaders of the people and the officials, the ones who were leading the way in unfaithfulness, as it turned out. Now keep in mind, there was no Mosaic law against marrying foreigners. In fact, many of the fathers of the faith had married somebody from outside the tribe of Israel and and brought them in to worship the true God with them. But God's people had been explicitly warned not to marry these people, the people of the land that they were entering into under Joshua. They had been told that if you marry with these people, you'll begin to worship their gods, and soon enough you'll be led away from me, the God who has brought you out of Egypt, out of slavery. The groups in verse 1 were exactly the same ones that the Israelites had been forbidden from marrying in Exodus 34, verses 11 to 16, in Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 to 5. That was because their influence would almost certainly lead to idolatry. The problem was a religious one and not a racial one. I think it's important that we see that. The leaders used the word holy race, or more literally, holy seed. The word holy means to be set apart, to be distinct. And God's holy people were meant to be set apart from their neighbors, to be different from the people around them in that they would worship the true God in the way that he demanded when the others chased after idols. And what was true of the old covenant people in in that day is true of the church today, the new covenant people, us. The church is called to be different to the world. We are meant to show a world that chases after idols and celebrates sin what it is to follow the true God. And to celebrate uh, him, his way of life. So when our neighbors worship wealth and, and celebrate greed, well, we are meant to worship God and celebrate generosity. Well, when our neighbors uh, worship sex and celebrate immorality, well, we are meant to worship Jesus and celebrate faithfulness in marriage. We are meant to display the the wisdom of God to the world in the way that we live and to display the the, uh, wonder of living a redeemed life in this world, the joy of that. But the danger of compromise with the world always looms because it's not a very comfortable thing to have to be different from the people around you. I mean, that is not a struggle that only teenagers face in school, is it? We face it very strongly there, but we still, we 
set our expectations according to the people around us. And we say, well, of course I do this, because everybody does this, don't they? That's not what the church is called to be. When God's holy people become like everyone else, they cease to be God's people at all. Like salt that loses its saltiness. What is that kind of salt good for? Jesus says nothing but throwing out and trampling underfoot. And that real danger of forfeiting their covenant relationship with God, well, that is why Ezra reacts so violently to this news. Did you see that? He, he tears his clothes, he pulls out his hair, and he sits down in the dirt. And that's where he remains until the evening. At that time, those were the behaviors of somebody mourning a death. If you had received news that a loved one had died, that's the sort of thing you would do. And Ezra was, in a sense, mourning the death of the people of God. He was prophetically declaring, we deserve death for this. We deserve destruction for idolatry. The same sin that had led the people of Israel into exile in the first place, well, that was what they were doing again, just after they had been brought back. And that threatened to wipe out the remnant. And you see, all those with spiritual sight who understood what the word of God taught, well, they gathered around him at that time. That's what we read in verse 4. Then everyone who trembled at the word of God at the word of God of Israel, gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. Now, friends, I don't have a flair for the dramatic, I don't think. So I'm not going to stand up here and tear my clothes and pull out my hair and uh, cover myself in dust. But I can't help but wonder whether it would be appropriate for us to mourn in some ways. To mourn and to tremble over the ways that we have failed to be a distinct, a set-apart people of God. You know, we, we know that Christians are called to be distinctly forgiving and gracious. And yet some of us nurse our bitterness and we justify our anger at other people. We know that we are set apart to sacrificially serve others in imitation of Jesus. And yet some of us live lives that are every bit as self-interested as our pagan neighbors. You wouldn't be able to tell the difference. We know that the church is called to share the gospel with a dying world. It's their only hope. And yet some of us haven't spoken to a non-Christian about Jesus in years. We know that Christians are called to sexual holiness within marriage. And that reflects something of Jesus' relationship with his church. And yet some of us celebrate and indulge in sexual immorality, which is common to our culture. 
Now, if those things are true of some of us, and it seems to me that they are, shouldn't we mourn? We will all one day stand before God and have to give an account for the way that we've lived our lives and the way that we have represented him in this community. Wouldn't it be appropriate to tremble at the word of God due to our sin and our collective unfaithfulness? I'm not saying every single one of us is guilty of every single one of those things, but if they're happening across our church, shouldn't we tremble? God has every right to remove our lampstand from Sai Kung. It is right and good and helpful to recognize the extent of our sin and to tremble before God sometimes. And that's what Ezra does. But that is not how the chapter ends. Indeed, that is not how the book ends. In light of the sin that threatens to destroy, what does Ezra do? Well, Ezra does the only thing that makes sense when you realize the depth of sin and the threat of it. He confesses. He confesses. And so in verses 5 to 15, we see the practice of genuine confession. A model here for us. We will be used to saying the general confession together. We'll do that before we have communion today. We say the words of confession together. And some of us from a Roman Catholic background, we might be used to going to a priest and confessing privately to a priest. But if we aren't careful, both those practices of confession, both those types of confession can become a dry religious sort of uh, practice, a, a mouthing of the words, a simply going along with the motions. But here, we see a model of genuine confession. What does it mean, what does it look like to genuinely confess sin to God? Well, let me draw your attention to, to five key aspects of genuine confession. First, genuine confession according to to verse 5, displays the right posture before God. So we have to confess with the right posture. And to say that, I mean primarily, first and foremost, the right spiritual posture before God. There's an appropriate spiritual posture for confession, one of mourning our sin and trembling at the word of God. The spiritual posture is necessary And we've seen that that is how Ezra was feeling and how the people that gathered around him were feeling. But notice that Ezra's spiritual posture is reflected in his physical posture. His clothes are torn in anguish. His knees are are bowed in humility. His hands are uh, up in, in pleading. It is my experience, and I wonder if it might be yours as well, that when I've most deeply felt my need before the Lord, I've found myself kneeling in prayer to him. 
That's not to say it has to be done. Kneeling or lifting our hands or uh, any other motion can become just another movement that we mindlessly perform. But because we are whole people, we're not souls in a machine and we're not brains on a stick. We are whole people. Sometimes our physical posture can reflect our spiritual posture and helpfully reinforce it. So whether we kneel at the general confession on a Sunday or kneel to pray at home, I think it can be helpful to do that sometimes. It helps reinforce the right spiritual posture in us. Secondly, from verses 6 to 7, genuine confession takes full responsibility. For most of us, I think our natural inclination is to deny responsibility for wrongdoing or at least to make excuses for it and certainly Ezra could have said look at these naughty people God I told them not to do that but they did that strike them down but he doesn't do that he says I am too ashamed and disgraced my God to lift up my face to you because our sins are higher than our heads. And our guilt has reached to the heavens. Now Ezra, he hadn't married a pagan, and he wasn't worshipping false gods. But as their leader, he identified with their sin. He doesn't pin it on the the people under him, as so many uh, leaders would. He doesn't try to excuse himself and and separate himself from them. He feels the immense guilt of sin, and he says, yeah, I share in this too. This is my sin too. And not only the guilt of his contemporaries, but do, do you see, he says his ancestors as well. The people that came before them. There was no attempt to blame his circumstances, no attempt to to blame his upbringing, no excuse, full responsibility. And what a model for us that is. What would it look like for us to take responsibility for the sin of our groups? Well, let me give some possible examples. Perhaps when our children are misbehaving, and causing problems, it might look like parents confessing to God and confessing to the child, maybe confessing to the ones that they have upset. That I, as the parent, share blame for this as well. Rather than just getting upset and telling them off and, and, and pinning it all on them to say, something I have done has contributed to this. Or maybe... When our church faces difficulty and conflict, it would look like each of us confessing our guilt for how things have gone, rather than withdrawing and thinking ill of other people around the place. Or maybe when our office is in turmoil, it could mean stepping in to share the blame with your inferiors, even though you wouldn't have to do that. but because you don't want to pin it on somebody else. There's incredible power in taking responsibility 
when others are fleeing from it. It's a godly trait that Ezra displays. Third, from verses 8 to 10, genuine confession admits the pure irrationality of sin. Ezra recounts the incredible goodness that God has shown over the last century. Despite their immense guilt, God has graciously left a remnant of survivors rather than wiped them out. He has given them security in the land during a politically chaotic time. He has refreshed them with repeated blessings for over a century. He has stuck with them through the punishments that they deserve to undergo. And he has protected them from further destruction. And yet, how do the people respond to that grace upon grace from God? Verse 10, but now, our God, what can we say after this? For we've forsaken the commands. Their sin is completely irrational. And that is fundamentally true about all our sin as well. It is fundamentally irrational. Sin, it coldly rejects a loving God. Sin chooses destruction over the creator. Sin doubts the character of a completely good Lord. Sin says, I know better than the all-knowing one. And genuine confession acknowledges that our sin makes no sense and admits that we have no excuse for it. No mitigating circumstances. Fourth, verses 11 to 14. Genuine confession agrees with God's judgment. In his prayer of confession, Ezra recalls what God has said about the specific sins of intermarrying. How they had been specifically warned not to do it. How they had been told the consequences of doing it. And then how they had gone ahead and done it anyway. And he agrees that God, in his righteousness, has every right to wipe them out completely. In verse 14, he says, Shall we break your commands again and intermarry with the people who commit such detestable practices? Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving no remnant or survivor? I think there's a way of confessing that I'm often guilty of that says, well, I said I'm sorry. You're obliged to forgive me now. You know, that's the kind of apology I often give to my wife, for example. I said I'm sorry. Get over it. I expect that sort of cheap grace to come. And while there, there might be something to that with a fellow sinner, right? Somebody who also does wrong, they, they might be expected to forgive somebody who does wrong. But what about a righteous God? God cannot be manipulated. If we confess our sin to God as a kind of transaction, well, as if we're trying to oblige him to forgive us, that's far from sincere. Do you see? It's not true confession. 
True confession agrees that his judgment is right and admits that we deserve the full weight of his condemnation for it. And fifthly, therefore, from verse 15, genuine confession depends entirely on God's grace. Having confessed that he and the Israelite people are entirely without excuse, Ezra has no other options but to throw himself on the grace of God. Lord, the God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant here before you in our guilt, though because of it not one of us can stand in your presence. Though God is righteous and they are entirely guilty, he has left them a remnant. Though none can stand in God's presence, here Ezra is coming before God in prayer. And here is the great paradox at the heart of the Christian faith. The paradox is that only those who confess that they are unworthy of God's grace will receive it. That's the only ones it's available to. Those who cover over their sin or deny it, those who blame others or or give excuses for it, those who believe that they were justified in their sin or who can escape the consequences of it, well, they will bear the full weight of guilt. But those who openly confess their faults will receive mercy. Before we come to the the final point I want to make this morning, I just want to note how uncommon this kind of genuine confession is. In both East and West, we want to save face. We want to remain innocent until proven guilty. And so people shift blame and make excuses and cover over wrongs. But that is not how it should be for God's holy people. We should be able to confess sin to God and to one another, even before we're caught out, even when we we want to hide our face in shame, even when no one dares to confront us about it because of who I am. We should confess. And yet in my experience, it is very rare indeed, even in the church, even among God's holy people. Rather than tremble at God's word about sin, people more often tremble in anger at those who would raise uh, questions about sin. And that is sub-Christian. That is sub-Christian, not holy, undeserving. Please, God, may people of our church be willing to confess their faults. May I be genuine in confession, and, and may you. And may we throw ourselves on God's grace, his mercy, as we do that. And show grace to one another as we do that. But in closing, the question might come, how can this be just? 
a God who forgives only those who don't deserve it? Isn't that the opposite of justice? Isn't that injustice by definition? And it really would have been had a leader better than Ezra not come along to make things right. Because while Ezra was right that no guilty person could stand in the presence of a righteous God, he had never expected, he could never anticipate that a righteous God would come and stand before guilty people, that he would come down. God's answer to the injustice of grace is to pay the price of sin himself on the cross so that we could be forgiven. While Ezra plucked out his own hair and his own beard, Jesus had his beard plucked out by others for their shame. While Ezra knew the sins of God's people and mourned their rightful death, Jesus knew our sins and died our rightful death. God's answer to the injustice of grace is to pay the price on the cross so that he could be both just and the justifier. That's what Romans 3.25 says. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. And he did that to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, he'd left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. But he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. So as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Jesus is the one who both stands in righteous judgment over all my sin and over all your sin, and he's the one that stands under judgment for it as well. So great is his love for each of us. And therefore, we can genuinely confess We can confess sin to him fully depending on his grace. Because that's what he came to give. Isn't that good? Isn't that wonderful? We don't have to hide. So let's pray as we come to the close of the sermon. Father God, thank you for your grace, your grace upon grace. Thank you that we can confess our faults openly, honestly, to you and to one another, knowing and trusting that you will forgive us, not because we can manipulate you into it, but because you are are overjoyed to, to save a people for yourself, to redeem us. Please give us tender hearts, tender consciences, Help us to keep short accounts with you and one another. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.